Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. We're starting a new series this week. Here we are at the beginning of our church plant with an opportunity to uh, make an impact in the community that we live in. And so I thought we probably ought to lay some things out on the table regarding what church is all about, what this church is going to be all about, and we've decided to call the series Beyond Playing Church. It's the title of a little book that I read uh, that a friend handed me, and uh, I thought the title fit well with what I would like to do in the next couple of weeks in here for one another. It's uh, All of us have been going to church for some length of time. Maybe others of us haven't, but we know people who have, and we do know the difference between those who play church and those who don't. And many of the people that we encounter do, and, uh, and to, some, to some of us that's a real turnoff, but what does it mean not to play church? What does it mean not to play church? If it's not a game, then someone tell me, what does it mean not to play? And I think in this series, we want to answer the basic question. What does God, why did he establish the church and what does he want to do with it? Then we have to answer the second question. How are we at North County Community Church going to do what God wants to accomplish with the church? Some time ago, I took the kids, some teenagers, to California to a mountain learning center experience. It was a mountain uh, expedition. And on the way there... We stopped. I couldn't wait. We were going to stop and see the Grand Canyon. I had never seen it before. Some of the kids had. I was with Greg Tanner. Does Greg remember? Greg? Been thinking about you the whole time because Greg was driving as we approached the Grand Canyon. Because I didn't know where I was going. I pretty You had been there before. Uh, and I was getting all excited. I remember the people being excited for me because I had never seen it. And we were looking for some roads. I was concerned we might fall down in it if we weren't careful. And... Uh, we've got to be very careful, and uh, we finally got around and find the route, found the road, and I remember parking the vehicle, and we started heading toward, and people were getting their cameras ready, and it was very exciting. I was almost getting this rush, and as I approached it, you couldn't really see it the whole time until you almost got right up on it, and then all of a sudden, this huge hole just appears out of nowhere, and for me, for a moment, it was just utterly breathtaking. I've just, I've never forgotten it and and you know Greg had seen it before so he was playing around I got slides of him kind of inside it hanging and you know he's playing around in this hole and I'm going no man ah, it was huge and I just I was uh, how many of you have never seen the Grand Canyon you cannot understand what I'm saying then and I'm really sorry I'm really only talking to those of you who've seen it no just kidding if you haven't seen it it is it's just amazing because as you approach it you start to see it just and it just all of a sudden it appears for you. Scholars have felt that feeling as they've approached the book of Ephesians. People have called it the crown of Paul's writing. They've called it the uh, queen of Paul's writings. But my favorite is Lewis Sperry Chaffers. He calls it the Grand Canyon of Scripture. And if you've ever gotten into Ephesians at all, you get right to the first chapter and it's just like seeing the whole thing at one time. In one moment you get that feeling of... Oh my goodness, is that what the church is for? Is that what this is all about? 
and you stand and you're breathless and you're speechless. And Paul takes you on this journey through this most incredible thing. And then he pans away and he pulls you across like we did in our vans. And we drive around it to different spots where we could get a different angle of, of the Grand Canyon. And I loved it. But different spots, you could see different things in different angles. Paul, first of all, gives you that huge view. He takes your breath away in chapter 1. And then he moves you into little different parts to show you this is what the church is all about. It's as though God takes Paul, gives him this guided tour of finally would someone explain, is church more than just getting dressed up on a Sunday morning and going somewhere? I want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 because I want you to step off this ledge. I want you to get right up close to it so you see and feel and let it take your breath away in regards to what the church is. In Ephesians chapter 1, the first two verses are a basic opening, a greeting. But it's the third verse. Paul jumps right in and he's got you on the ledge. And he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Right off, Paul blurts out this blessing. Blessed be God who has blessed us with blessing. Now you've got a figure of speech in the Greek language called a paronymasia. It's where one, year, one word is used to describe more than one thing. And it's designed to call your attention. Hey, you see this? Paul says, blessed, 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 three times in one verse to describe three different things. Number one, how we respond to God. Number two, what He has done for us. And number three, what we have as a result of what He's done. One word describes all three things. Paul's saying, do I have your attention now? We're on the ledge. It's amazing here. Blessed, 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 three times. Verses 3 all the way to 14 form one complicated sentence in Greek. To diagram it, you want to pull your hair out. Because you don't know where this might go and this might go. It's more like a lyric. Like lyrics, like a song, praise. And Paul is trying to blurt out. And wonder after wonder keeps appearing before his eyes as he's trying to express what the church is. And you can sense his emotional trauma almost as he is trying to express what the church is all about. Paul will proceed in verses 4 to 14 to tell you what the blessings are that God has given the church. That's what he does. That's what it's all about. You've probably read it a hundred times. But there are seven blessings. I just want to show them to you quickly. Pan them, kind of. Let you get a quick look, pull away, and let you look somewhere else. If you look in the chapter, I want to just point them out to you. You might want to mark them so you know where they are the next time. In verse 4... He says, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. So He chose us. What does that mean? The word is to select. He elected you. He selected you before time. Before time ever began, He selected a group of people to represent Him. That's what it means. He, res he, rep he, he selected them to represent Him. Okay? 
Verse 5, there's a second one. He predestinated us to the adoption of sons. In other words, after He selected us, He determined what our destiny would be. And the destiny was that we would be like His Son. Then there's a third one. It's grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Grace. In other words, you didn't earn anything for Him to choose you. You didn't earn anything for Him to predestinate you. He did it all on His own. In fact, you had just the very opposite. Nothing going for you at all. That's what grace is. Undeserved favor. And then in verse 7, In Him we have redemption. What is redemption? It means to buy back. God has purchased you with His Son. Why? So your sins could be forgiven. He bought us. He chose us. He predestinated us. He did it all in grace. And then He bought you with His Son's death. Number five is in verse 9. Verse 8 says, In all wisdom and insight, He made known to you, in verse 9, He made known to you what the mystery of His will is. Notice what He says. Verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth in Him. Here's basically what that means. God also, in those blessings, revealed to the church what its primary goal was. What His entire plan of history was, and it is basically this. That God would sum up all things under Jesus Christ. That one day Jesus Christ will rule over the entire earth. That's where we're moving. The church knows it. How does the church play it out, is the question. That's the other blessing. There's another one in verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance. We have an inheritance. The inheritance is future. We get salvation now, but one day in heaven we'll get the rest of it. When we no longer have physical bodies. When we are in the presence of God forever. There's no more death and there's no more crying. Ba ba ba. That's our inheritance. Then, verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit. After God gives you all those blessings, He takes the Holy Spirit last, and He puts it on you and He seals you. Nothing can get out, nothing else can get back in. And He marks you as His own possession, guaranteeing that one day what He promised you would be yours. It's like a... It's like a ring. It's like an engagement ring. I give you the engagement ring. It's a down payment to show that I'm coming through on the rest of it. The illustration falls short. You belong to certain families that have been engaged a number of times and didn't really work out. The bottom line is, when God gives the Holy Spirit, you can guarantee He's coming through with the rest of the promise. So here you and I are. We've gotten the blessings. We're all wrapped up. We're ready to go. We've got a plan. God's got a plan. He's given you all the resources that you need. You say, wonderful. I've seen the Grand Canyon. Marvelous blessings. You're right, Paul. Bless God. Now what? See, that's the question you really have to ask yourself at the end of this chapter. Awesome blessings. Now what do we do? And this is the part I love. Because we all ask that question. Scholars who study Ephesians, what do we do now with all these blessings? 
Well, Paul prays a prayer in verse 15, which starts the new section and kind of wraps it up. I want you to look there. It says, For this too, I having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Here's what I pray for. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. And here's the real heart of what He's saying to us now. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. There's one of those phrases you go, well, what does that mean? He wants you to understand now at a deeper level. You have just heard the blessings. You've just heard what God wants to do with the church. He's going to use it to sum up all things under Christ. Okay, now what do I do with it? Is it really going to change my life? I'm going to go out of here. I'm going to go to a picnic. I'm going to have lunch. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to have my normal week and I'll be back here. Is it really going to change my life that I heard those blessings? Paul says, I want to pray, not that you just know what the blessings are, but that they get inside you and that you understand them with your heart, not just your head. I want it to go deeper. I want you to see what I'm saying. And so what he's going to do and what he asks you to pray for, what he prays for, which are three things. These are the three things that you pull away and you take with you when you leave Ephesians 1. Because this is what he wants you to know. After you've read the blessings, what do you leave with? Paul prays that you'll get the three of the things that he prays for. Notice what they are. Number one, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that, number one, you would know what is the hope of his calling. Number two, and what is the surpass, or uh, underneath that, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And number three, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the strength of his might. His calling, his power, those are the things he wants you to know when you leave Ephesians chapter 1. Now, most of you have seen The Lion King. There's a, there's a great line or scene in it that every time I read it, I think of this whole section. You remember when Simba develops the Akuna Matata attitude, which when you play church, you kind of get that one. Whatever, whatever. And he develops this, it doesn't matter who I am, forgot that he was a lion, he's hanging out with a, a stinky, whatever that, what is it, hog, word hog. And then the other thing, what I'm not really sure, what is he, a, a, a weasel? Is he a weasel? Some weasel looking thing. Here's this lion hanging out with weasels and warthogs, singing a kuna matata. Somewhere along the line, he's forgotten. He forgot his responsibility. He forgot the days with his father. He forgot the responsibility of who he was. He forgot the circle of life, the whole plan and how it works together and how you got to have somebody sitting on Pride Rock. Right down the tubes. But then that day when he meets Narla again, his childhood sweetheart and friend, and she tries to talk some sense in, and you may remember that real heavy scene where they kind of go at each other, and she's trying to show him who he is. 
Watch it. And I found you. Don't you understand? You are our only hope. Sorry. What's happened to you? You're not the Simba I remember. You're right. I'm not. Now are you satisfied? No. Just disappointed. You know, you're starting to sound like my father. Good. At least one of us does. Listen, you think you can just show up and tell me how to live my life? You don't even know what I've been through. I would if you just tell me. Forget it. Fine! She's wrong. I can't go back. I would improve anyway. Won't change anything. You can't change the past. You said you'd always be there for me! But you're not. And it's because of me. It's my fault. It's my fault. I love this monkey. This is Ephesians 1. That's Paul right there in the tree. Can I get your attention, please? There he goes. Come on, will you cut it out? Can't cut it out. It's go right back. <laughs> Creepy little monkey. You stop following me? Who are you? The question is, who are you? I thought I knew. Now I'm not so sure. Well, I know who you are. Shh, come here. It's a secret. It means you're a baboon, and I'm not. <laughs> I think you're a little confused. Wrong. I'm not the one who's confused. You don't even know who you are. Oh, and I suppose you know. Sure do. You're Mufasa's boy. Bye. Correction, I know your father. I hate to tell you this, but he died a long time ago. No, wrong again! <laughs> He's alive! And I'll show him to you. You follow old Rafiki, he knows the way. Come on!
just my reflection. No. Look hard. You see, he lives in you. Sorry to bring you back to reality. I hate when a movie ends. But I don't think anything illustrates it better. Because I think we walk around with the warthogs, and I think we walk around like we've got nothing to offer. And Paul refuses to let you leave Ephesians 1 with the attitude of, thanks for the blessings, God, but I want to eat the little cream pot the bugs. Thanks for the blessings, though. Paul says, I'm going to pray that God gets it through your skull. Look harder. Look harder. What am I supposed to see, God? What is it that I should see that will radically change my life and let me get on with, my pl with your plan for me? Paul prays for them. The hope of his calling. Nice words, Paul. What in the world does it mean? The hope of his calling. It means you have hope. It means you have hope because of the calling. The calling is God initiated a relationship with you and has provided a hope for you that nobody has unless they know God. And no matter what you do, you can walk around with the word hogs, but you're still a lion. You still belong to the king. You will always have his thumbprint on you. It's just a matter of deciding and getting back to that decisive moment like he experiences. And then he's on his way back to Pride Rock. On our way back to accomplishing what the church is all about. The hope of your calling. Listen, in the church, we're not volunteers. We distinguish in church of volunteers, paid staff, the clergy and the laity. I'm just like you. They're only paying me to do it because I need more time to do it. That's all they're doing. The only difference, that's the only difference is between us. I don't have any special blessing. I don't have anything. There's no special verse in Ephesians for those who are in clergy. We all have the same responsibility. You're called to it. You're called to fulfill the responsibility that God has given us as the church. See, volunteers don't have anything at stake in it. They can stay home on a Sunday if they wake up and don't really care to come. They can, they can forget about their neighbors. There's no claim in it for them. That's wrong with Christianity. In the church, we're not volunteers. We're called. 
And I love being able to call people up to that high standard of what God is calling them to, as opposed to backing off and saying, sorry, I have to call you to something that's really difficult. Because I know you're pressured for time, and I know your life is really busy, and I'm sorry God has this huge plan we've got to fulfill. But do you think you could help out? You know that attitude? This is not my ministry. This is not the board's ministry. It is the church, and it's God's ministry. And we all have the same hope because God initiated a relationship with us. In the military, when you sign up, you know, you volunteer, you know how they say, then you get in there, they don't walk in and ask if you'd like to get up in the morning. Or would you please make your bed if you get around to it? Or you want to help me carry this? Volunteer, that word's gone. You use it on the outsiders with us. It's gone in there. That's the way God's trying. That's the way Paul's trying to operate with us. We're not volunteers. Peter Drucker, in his book, Managing the Nonprofit Organization, said, we're not volunteers, we're just unpaid staff. That's all. The calling. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What is that? Notice it's his calling, and it's his inheritance, verse 18. The riches and the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You know what that means? God. God's inheritance is us. He possesses us. Do you know the riches and the glory of being possessed by God? Of have him, having him own you and possess you and have him marked as his, as, your, uh, as his own? Do you know the riches and the glory that Paul's praying? That it sinks down deep and that you understand what it means to have the riches and the glory of being the privileged son of God. You can almost hear that voice saying, remember, remember. You remember who you are? Instead in the church, you've got this consumer mentality. I wonder if the church will deliver. This is spiritual consumerism. This is the mentality of spiritual consumers. They wonder if the church is going to deliver. Well, think there'll be a good sermon this morning? Think the fellowship will be all right at the picnic, or is it going to be one of those things where, you know, nobody talks to anybody? What kind of youth activities they have. If they don't have them, I'm not coming back. I was talking to a guy at the YMCA this week. I'm encouraging to be here. He's 30, single. I started talking to him. I, you know, he asked me what I do for a living. I've avoided it for a long time, telling him what I do for a living. Because I didn't want him to just keep that in the back of his mind. I wanted him to like me before he knew I was a pastor, you know. So we started, you know, we're just hanging out a little bit. I tell him, he finally asked, and I try to avoid it, but I pie, I'm a pastor. Really? Great, where's your church? I told him where the church was. I said, yeah, we're three weeks old, blah, blah, blah. Man, things are going great. His first, his first thing out of his mouth, I didn't, I was waiting for, what's the name of your church? How to get there? I was waiting for, uh, uh, what do you guys believe? Do you have a good singles ministry? For all he cared, we could have been sacrificing babies to Baal. Because most people are just, they just think consumer. What's in it for me if I go there? Are there babes there? Because then it doesn't matter to me what you say. 
That's the mentality that comes. And it comes out. And you think about it in your own life. We all have it to some degree. If we don't like something or something doesn't go our way, we forget the big picture and the task that God's trying to accomplish with the church. We get focused on these other little things. There's a third one. It's the surpassing greatness of His power toward believers according with the working of His strength of His might. There's another thing He wants you to know. Not only that He's initiated a relationship, you have hope and you're not a volunteer. Not only not only that you're not a consumer anymore. You're not a consumer You've got all the blessings and the privilege of being in relationship with God. What else do you want? But now he says you've got power. You have more power than you know. In fact, Paul basically exhausts the Greek language to give every single word for power he can come up with. The power, the working of his might and strength to communicate how powerful God is. And the authority that the church carries. There is nothing else you and I know that has the power that the church has. Paul says, and the way God demonstrated his power was he raised God, Jesus Christ, from the dead, seated him in the heavenlies. Look what it says in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, there is nothing more powerful than Jesus Christ. And notice where he is in verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under Christ and gave him as head over to who? The church. First time it's called the church in all the book of, all the first chapter. I'm just getting around to the main point. With all of the blessings you have and now the authority of Jesus Christ having been given to you, you are the church. You are my assembly, my team. We're on a task here. You're not a volunteer. Don't worry about what's coming your way. I've already blessed you. Now get that look on your face like there's get that look off your face like there's no way I can do that. It's that symbol look. I don't see anything. It's that look. You have the power. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, that great verse all of us know. Now unto him who is exceedingly abundantly capable of doing all surpassing greatness. Because of the power, where's the power? That works in you. That means you can make a difference where you are. That means you can impact. You can minister. You can, you can contribute to this body. You can be a part of the plan. God's gifted and designed that you become a part of the big picture. Not that you attend church. And what I'm saying here three weeks into this thing is, do we just want to be another church with a pretty sign on the street anywhere in this world? Or do we want to decide right here that we're not going to be concerned about all the things that churches in America are concerned about or tend to be concerned about? What's in it for me? God has already blessed you. He has the plan. We're not trying to invent a new future here. We're not trying to discover a new future. We're just trying to, to do the one God's already called us to. I read this week, actually a couple weeks ago, 1,600 be people belong 
to the International Flat Earth Research Society of America. I didn't even know such a society existed. Did anybody in here know such a society existed? The International Flat Earth Research Society of America. There are 1,600 Americans. There could be one in here. Is there anyone a member of the Flat Earth? I was reading that and I couldn't believe it. Charles Johnson is the president. Here's what he said. He says he's been a flat earther all his life. When I, he, says, he said this, when I saw the globe in grade school, I didn't accept it then, and I don't accept it now. Good for you, Charles. A flat earther. It's the pictures that convinced me. Not, you know, if nothing else did, physics and all the rest of it, it's just the picture of that round thing in space that convinced me it's not flat. It wasn't the globe in elementary school. But you know what's even more unbelievable to me? Is that in the church there are not flat earthers, there are churchgoers. You couldn't convince them if you put pictures, slides, had God make a guest appearance that there's something more to church than attending on Sunday mornings. You couldn't. Somewhere they look in the water but they don't see the reflection. And so that's why the church is plagued with churchgoers. If this many people in this room right here got convinced that God could use them and stopped running around in the fields with a pretty, pretty river's flow and got serious about what the church is about, I can't believe. You wouldn't believe what we could do. We've got all the power. We've already been blessed. We're resourced out the kazoo. And all I'm saying right now is three weeks in, even if you go to another church, you might just be visiting here. You may never be back here another Sunday. Even in the church that you go to, I'm just asking that Christians start to see in Ephesians 1 what God wants to do with the church. And that is, He wants to use it to show. Remember, the basic theme is, I want to bring everything to where it's under me. Jesus is saying, that's the whole kingdom program. Everything's going to be under me. All things will be in subjection to me. Then He says, He ascended has all the authority, where did God put him? In the church. That means he sits over the church now. One day he's going to sit over the entire universe physically. That means the church is a microcosm of what's going to happen one day in the whole future. Jesus Christ rules and reigns over this group right here. How do we show that in the world? How do we show he rules and reigns right here so we communicate the message like Ephesians 3 says, when the mystery wasn't revealed that the church had it, that all the data. When the church didn't have all the data, Paul says... God revealed the mystery. I told it. And then in Ephesians 3, now he's going to use the church to make it known. And nothing communicates to the world that God reigns than when he reigns over your individual life. Do people see him reigning over your individual life? In the things you say and the things you do and what happens in your life and all the rest of it. But then in the church too. Are you a church goer? To your neighbors or are you serious about God's plan there may be one of you sitting in here that says I don't even know the blessings never even I've never even had anybody explain to me the things that Jesus Christ could do for a person choose you predestinate you do it in grace redeem you and buy you then fill you with all the information about what the end of the world's going to be like then give you an inheritance in the saints and then seal you so nothing can get in and then somebody pray for you that it would get inside your heart and you'd never forget it and it would change your life? I don't know that. If you're here like that, and you don't know Jesus Christ, 
I pray to God that this morning you will take that opportunity to do it. There's not a more important decision in all the world. There's not another thing I love saying. There's not another thing I love coming out of my mouth than Jesus Christ can save your soul. Nothing better ever said. You don't have to kill yourself anymore. So if you don't know who he is, I pray that you take the opportunity to take him into your life. The scripture says if you believe with all your heart and confess it with your mouth, you're saved. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But if you are saved, and you've been called, I pray what Paul prayed for you, that it'll sink in, that you'll get on God's team and start doing what the church is all about, and not just be a churchgoer. Let's go beyond playing church. I promise, my promise to you is that as long as I have breath, I'll make sure we don't just play church here. I'll keep it before us, right here. And we don't just play around. If we'll just become a team and nobody will play. We will turn the world upside down for God. Let's pray. Father, often we are part of eternal history and we don't even know it. Pray with all my heart this morning that Paul's prayer will be answered in our lives. That we will recognize the hope we have, the power that we have, and the inheritance that we have because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, for the one or two or however many who are here and don't have it, I pray for their souls today. Somewhere on the line, you'll bring them to yourself. In Jesus' name.